Now, thanks we all our God. We'll sing all three of number 316. Our second song, number 460, Jesus, Savior, Pilot Me, sang all three of number 460.
for our third song, number 427. I need thee every hour, all three of 427. And for our fourth one, she backed me up and agreed with it. On Mother's Day, all of us children, I'm sure we all know this last and final one, the first stanzas of Jesus Loves Me.
Good evening and welcome. Just a brief um, announcement before we begin, a reminder um, that the cadet campout is scheduled for this Friday and Saturday, uh, starting at 5 o'clock or whenever you can get there at, uh, at Mingerings. Beloved, the Lord calls us this evening to worship with these words from Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the upright and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let us ask the Lord to bless our worship and to use it to bring glory to his name. Let us pray silently together. Father, we thank you and we rejoice that we can set aside the labors of our week to gather among the saints here to hear your word and to proclaim your praises. Empower us to do so in a manner that honors you as we submit ourselves to your fatherly care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him from number 317. 317, Come Thou Almighty King.
Our confession of the Lord this evening, we're going to use the Nicene Creed as we find it in our Trinity Psalter Hymnal. You can find that on page 852 in the back of your Trinity Psalter Hymnal. 852. Acknowledging our unity with the church throughout the world and throughout the ages. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is from Psalm 119, verses 129 to 144. Two stanzas that are very similar within this psalm. Now, of course, the whole psalm confesses the goodness and the glory of God's Word, especially of His law. And so the first of these two stanzas confesses a love for God's Word and of comfort in His promise pleading on the basis of those promises for relief from men who oppress. And then in the next stanza, he confesses again, leads us to confess love for and zeal concerning God's law, which is trustworthy, which is sure. And the enemy rejects it. The the world opposing him tramples on God's law, but God's testimonies, he says, never fail. You know, both of these... Point us to Christ. 
who came to uphold and to fulfill God's law, and who is, in fact, the embodiment of God's Word. Just as we can trust that the Word of God which He entrusted to us in the Bible will never fail, will never change, will never let us down, will never lead us astray. So Jesus, as the embodiment of the Word of God, will never let us down. will never allow an unbelieving world and hateful enemies to trample us. But He will always be there with us. He will always guide us and lead us in the way that we should go. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because your foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Amen. Let us take up the first of those two stanzas from selection 119Q in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 119Q.
As we come to the Lord in prayer, just um, in addition to the concerns noted this morning, um, take note in your announcement bulletin of the uh, requests from the Missions Committee. Uh, Reverend James Folkerts um, has been for several years working with the OPC in Uganda, um, and they have about two weeks left before they return to Canada. Um, That's hard. You know, they have grown to love the folks there. They've really invested um, in them. That's their people. And, uh, and they have to leave them behind. And I don't know what comes next for them, but, uh, but please be in prayer that that transition would go well. Um, in addition, um, there's a special request regarding Bill and Aletha Green uh, in Costa Rica. Uh, Aletha has uh, been treated for breast cancer and uh, the healing process has not gone well. So she had to submit to another minor surgery this past week. So please be in prayer for Aletha and, and also for Bill. Um, and then also there is a cross-cultural missions training that is beginning this week in Mexico for um, young adults who are considering whether the Lord might be calling them into the mission field. So please keep that in prayer. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we hear the words of the psalmist reminding us of how faithful and true you are, and yet how persistently an unbelieving world rejects you and your Lordship over it. And we echo his sentiments. For we have learned to love you and to love your word. We have learned to trust that what you command us is good and is right and is for our good. And we have learned, Father, that no matter what men say and no matter how they mock or cajole or threaten, to follow you is to follow the the safe path, the path of life, the path of light. Father, we pray that you would continually deepen our commitment to you so that each of us, when faced with the lies and the threats of this world, would daily renew our commitment to live for you, trusting that you know what is best, believing that Christ will never leave us or forsake us, but will guide us through until the very end that we might dwell in your presence forever. Father, we we grieve when we see the ugliness and the emptiness of the lives of those who live in rebellion against you. And we see it all around us. We see it in our broader families, we see it among our co-workers, we see it in our neighbors, men and women who live only for the moment and only for the passions of the flesh. We see it in the leaders of our land, Lord. Folks who cynically employ the power that you have entrusted to them simply to gain and amass more power, more influence, more worldly good for themselves with no thought to the consequence for those over whom they rule, with no thought for what is right 
or wrong according to your judgment. Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to work with great power in the hearts of those in our state, in our nation, in our land, who have turned away from you and have sought themselves to sit upon the throne. And we pray that you would give us both discernment and boldness. Give your people discernment to recognize the way in which you have been working in the hearts of those around them. So that we might see those who are grieving and recognize that grief as an opening for the comfort of the gospel. So that we can see those who are suffering the effects of their sin and the consequences of their rebellion. So that we might come with the word of pardon in Christ. That you might show us the turmoil into which men have been led by their sin and their rebellion so that we might speak to them of the joy and the freedom that is found in submitting to your rule. Give us the wisdom to know what to say to those around us and and what will reach their situation and grant us boldness. Knowing that we have been entrusted with the word of life. We have been given the only comfort man can know and that we have the glorious privilege of introducing those around us to it. Father, enable us to speak with bold and confident humility, knowing that the truth we share is not from us and does not rely on us, and that we can't make them accept it, but knowing that you delight to use weak vessels like we are, to introduce that life-saving truth to the hearts of your elect. And Father, we pray that you would allow those seeds to fall on well-prepared soil, that you would allow our testimony of who you are and what you've done, our invitation to come and to worship and to hear more, to be well received that they might come and hear the word proclaimed and experience the fellowship of the saints and so be brought unto your throne of grace. And we pray this not only for the, the near, for our neighbors, for our relatives and friends, but also for those far, for those who have power and authority and influence, that through their submission to you, others might be led to see the transformative power of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would work with great power to draw in your elect, using even those like us who are weak. Father, we pray for our children and our young people, who are bombarded on every side with Satan's plots and plans to lead them astray. Through the internet, through a whole variety of apps, through 
the world where they work through the educational system, even among some of the Christian schools, many of them. They are called to believe their own truth, to create their own reality, to put themselves on the throne, to question and judge even your word, Lord. Make them to be discerning and strong, to recognize the ugliness of those calls and to stand firmly on the foundation of Christ and His Word, that they might not be led astray by those sweet-sounding words of the evil one. Lord, as we come to that part of the year where, for many of our children, schooling is wrapping up, we pray that You would keep them from losing sight of the goal of understanding this world in the light of made it. And for those who have completed their school year, enable them, Lord, through the work that they do, through their summertime schedule with their parents and their friends, to see the truth and the application of what they have learned about you and about what you have done. And so make our children and our young people eager to apply your word in the fullness of life. Father, we ask your blessing upon the missionary work of the church. As you use this congregation to reach out to the community, we think especially of of Vacation Bible School in about a month. We pray that you would prepare us well and that you would use us to the end that Children, both our own and those in the surrounding community, might come to know who you are and what you have done and how essential it is that we know and submit to you. Also in our personal interactions, Lord, use us as your servants. And Lord, we pray too for um, those who have been sent abroad. We think of the Folkerts family. Thank you for the work that they've been able to do in Uganda. Thank you for protecting and preserving them through the years, including in some difficult situations. Father, we pray that you would cause the work that they have done to bear abundant fruit. Comfort their hearts as they prepare to leave behind their teammates, their church members, their loved ones, and guide them in the way that they ought to go for the next thing that you have planned. Likewise, we pray for Bill and Aletha Green. As Aletha recovers from her surgery, Lord, grant her healing and strength and encouragement and give continued strengthening and provision for Bill as he leads the church, as he leads the um, publishing ministry there in Costa Rica. Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless their work well and cause it to bear fruit unto your glory. We pray too for the cross-cultural missions training that is happening in Mexico. Lord, we ask that, uh, that you would use that work to prepare the hearts of those whom you would be called, whom you would call into the missionary field. We ask that you would equip them well and give them a passion for proclaiming the gospel in those places where you would send. And Lord, closer to home, we pray that you would bless the churches of this classes as we seek to reach out into our communities, as we seek to build one another up, discipling the saints, 
Lord, protect us from the snares of the evil one. Keep us focused on applying your word to, well, especially to the hearts of those whom you have set before us, but also to the communities where you have placed us, that we might declare the sovereign kingship of Christ as the true ruler and as the true hope of this land. We pray for the meeting of Classes Michigan that is slated for Tuesday evening. We ask that you would grant wisdom to those delegates who attend and that you would use the counsel that they give for the peace and the well-being of your church. And Father, we pray that you would watch over all of those who stand in need of particular care. For those among us who are going through medical trials and difficulties, Lord, we pray that you would provide the healing and the help and the strength that we crave. For those who are grieving, we ask that you would grant comfort. For those who are wrestling with doubts and fears, those brought low by depression or anxiety, Lord, buoy them up by your strength and by the presence of your Spirit and enable us, Lord, to minister to one another that you might be glorified as your people apply the gospel and its promises to each other's lives and that the world looking on might eagerly long for that comfort and that fellowship and that strengthening which you provide to us. And Lord, grant that we might recognize day by day that it is not of us that we receive this comfort. It is not in our family or in our knowledge or in our perseverance or in anything that comes of us that we are sustained. But it is entirely from you. And therefore it is on you that we rest and to you that we look. Grant us your strengthening and guidance through the word proclaimed this evening. And when we conclude our worship, lead us from this place with joy and with thanksgiving. That we have been able to gather in your presence. That we have been made part of this body of Christ. And that we have been equipped for the work that you have ordained in this week ahead. Now, Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we turn together to reading God's Word. Let's sing some more of it. As we uh, sing the second of the two stanzas from Psalm 119 that we read, Selection R, 119R in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, we'll sing all four stanzas.
Well, I uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus 10. We're going to read two, uh, two brief passages before we consider our question and answer from Lord's Day 35. The first of them is Leviticus 10. The second will be from John 4. Now, Leviticus relates a number of, quite a number of the laws that God gave to His people as they were in the wilderness preparing to go to the promised land. And it also relates some of the history of that journey between Egypt and Canaan. Leviticus 10, the first three verses, relates a, a sad event. Also a rather startling one. Moses writes now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. Now stop there just a moment. Kids, do you know what a censer is? It kind of looks like a little lamp. It's made out of brass or bronze. And a priest would use it to bring incense before the Lord as he commanded. So, for instance, on the Day of Atonement, he would take his censer, he would take coals from the altar and put it in that censer, and he would put special incense that God had commanded. God had even given the recipe for this incense. He would put that on there, and it would create a great quantity of smoke, and he would take that into the most holy place, and it would create both a blinding smoke and a pleasing scent. And he would use that to fill the most holy place before he brought in the blood of the sacrifice for his sins and then for Israel's sins. That was part of what God commanded in the worship of the Old Covenant. So this is what they're doing. Each one took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But notice well, God is holy. And his holiness will not be mocked. Right? He's showing us he's very serious about upholding his holiness in worship. Now, we turn from there to John chapter 4. And here we find a very different situation. Jesus is speaking with a woman at Sychar, a town in uh, Samaria. He's speaking with her at the well just outside of town. And he has told her enough to demonstrate to her that he is not just an ordinary Jewish guy passing through Samaria. She has come to recognize that he is at the very least a prophet. And in verse 19, she dives into some of the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews believed God was to be worshipped. They realized, both realized, that God's worship was crucial and that God upholds his holiness. But the Jews said that means you need to worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans said, no, you have to worship at the mountain in Samaria. And so they disagreed on a deeply fundamental subject. And so she says, 
Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking, pe- seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Amen. Now with those passages and their lessons in mind, we turn to... Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35 talks to us about the second commandment, which on the face of it is about images, or rather the prohibition against images in worship. Now we're going to deal with this in two segments. Today, looking at the overarching thrust of the command. Next week, Lord willing, looking at some of the specifics, especially as it comes to images But the first question is where we're going to focus tonight. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? The answer is that we in no way make any image of God, nor worship Him in any other way than has been commanded in God's Word. That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship Him in any other way than has been commanded in God's Word. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, What kind of worship do you prefer? That's a question that is often asked among Christians of our age and place. What kind of worship do you prefer? Do you prefer traditional worship with an organ or a piano? Or do you prefer contemporary worship with a praise band? Do you like your worship sort of Pentecostal flavored and spirit driven or perhaps a service that is high liturgical in flavor? Do you like a service that focuses on millennials or one that's more aimed at boomers? Is a children's service something that you're eager for or would you rather maintain a blended service? And what kind of atmosphere do you desire? Relaxed, formal, business casual? The options for worship seem nearly endless, and you can find every one of them within a 15 to 20 minute drive of right here. But, but, do you notice a problem with those questions? What kind of worship do you prefer? The focus is on the worshiper, on the individual, on the me. Worship, according to Scripture, is not primarily about me. Worship is about God. He calls us to hear His Word on the day that He set apart. He commands us to confess what He has expressed about Himself. His praise is to be on our lips unto His glory. First to last, top to bottom, inside and out, worship is to be about and for the honor of God. What I want or desire really has very little to do with it. 
That's not a message that's often heard or even considered in American churches today. But it is a lesson that we must consider if we would honor and please God with our worship. And that's why our catechism written nearly 500 years ago asks this exceptionally relevant and current question or expresses this relevant and current insight. Because, you know, things really haven't changed all that much. We're a whole lot more blunt and open about it today. But that self-centered, me-centered drive, they knew about that in the age of the Reformation. They felt that in the Middle Ages. They experienced that in the Apostolic Age. And all the way back in Leviticus 10, Israel out in the wilderness, they felt the same drive to worship according to their desires, to worship in the way that they invented And it was to combat that that the second commandment was given. The idea, the essence of the second commandment is simply that God's grateful children embrace the worship that their father prescribes. And that's what we want to consider this evening. How God's grateful children, grateful for his salvation, grateful for his perfect care in all of life, God's grateful children embrace the worship that their Heavenly Father prescribes. We've got to look at both sides of that, the negative and the positive. The negative is considering the self-centered worship that our God despises. And we're going to look at that first so that we can deal with it because it's so current, because it's so it surrounds us. But then we're going to con- conclude with the positive side seeing the submissive worship that delights God. Because we should not be, it's tempting, but we should not be defined by what we're not, by what we don't like, by what we reject. As a church, we should be defined in our worship by what we are, by what God has called us to be, right? And by what delights us. But we have to see... To to understand that, to appreciate that, we have to see the negative that we're called to turn away from. And so we begin with the warning against the self-centered worship that God despises. But as we do that, I, I think we need to start with a brief disclaimer. Because a great variety of worship styles are offered by churches in our region. And the assumption might be made that we are saying that those churches are apostate, they're false churches, or the people there aren't Christian. And I want to be very clear that we aren't saying that at all. Churches that offer worship that we believe is wrong, or churches that offer multiple services to cater to different tastes and desires, or churches that tailor their worship in order to make people happy, we believe that what they're doing is wrong. But we do not believe that they're not truly churches of Christ or that those who worship there are not Christians. Not saying that. In fact, as one who grew up in one of those churches where the worship was driven by the preference of the minister or the preference of the board of trustees, a church where 
We never, ever, ever, ever heard that there was anything biblical that ought to drive our worship. I think I can honestly say we should be compassionate for folks in those churches because, for the most part, they don't know any better. They don't know any different. They are doing what comes natural. They are doing what they do in the rest of life, and that's pursuing that which pleases them. That which fits their desire, their preference. I drive a Chevy or a Ford or a Jeep because I like a Chevy or a Ford or a Jeep. I got a job in that field because that field kind of fit me. That's what they do in all of life and so with worship. And no one has told them that there's any kind of different criteria there. So the fault for their faulty worship lies not so much with the worshiper who hasn't been taught what the Bible says, but with the preacher and with the elders who should know better. But then there's an objection that I I think we hear way too often. Does it really matter? I mean, doesn't God just care that we worship? Does it really matter how we worship? Whether it's contemporary or high liturgical or informal, does it really matter as long as we are worshiping? Well, it does. God cares about the form and the content of the worship that we bring. We know that because he has told us so extensively and so concretely. We'll look at a couple passages in a few minutes that demonstrate how precise and specific his instruction concerning worship is and how he has given us so many abundant examples of the kind of worship that we should bring, and how he has admonished his people repeatedly that they must heed his commands concerning worship. In fact, that attitude should characterize all of what we do on the Lord's Day. In Isaiah 58, the Lord admonishes his people concerning the Sabbath day to turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. And he says, call the Sabbath day a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. Honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. And he says, if you do that, then you will take your delight in the Lord. If you do that, then God will delight in you. Not if you do what comes natural to you or what pleases you, but if you strive to delight Him, to do what He desires. You see, there are two options, two, and only two options for how we worship God. We overcomplicate it way too much. You hear Christians talking, well, what kind of music style do you prefer? What kind, do you prefer hymns? Do you prefer psalms? Do you prefer the old kind of hymns or the new contemporary? It doesn't matter. There's really only two options. There's option one. We strive to worship God the way He has commanded in the Bible. Now, we're not all going to be cookie cutter if we do that. Because 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, we still see through a glass darkly. Right? We don't all understand the same passage in exactly the same way. And so one of us is going to get it wrong. Maybe both of us to some degree. But that first option... The crucial aspect to it is that we're striving together to worship the way God has commanded. 
We're striving to understand his instruction in Scripture and to follow that, putting him first, making his desire determinative. That's option one. And option two is everything else. Whether we determine our worship based on the studies of a focus group, or surveys from the Barna group, or the chatter in the fellowship hall after worship, or what we hear at family visiting, or what we see in our neighboring churches, or whatever. Option two is anything else. And that second option is exactly why God forbade, what, forbade images in worship. Again, we're going to talk more about that next week, but, but understand that in that age, when Moses was leading the people into the promised land, one of the most common aspects of the worship of the false gods was images, right? Because by means of those images, they could bring God down, or their conception of God, down to their level. Could make him sort of approachable, manageable, manipulable. They could put God in a form where they could oblige him to serve them. And God said, you, you may do that with me. For one thing, I am spirit. You can't depict me that way. For another thing, when you try to depict me that way, I'm getting into next week's sermon. When you try to depict him that way, you're really reforming God in your image. But most of all, you're becoming sovereign over that worship. And worship is for God. He's the one to be sovereign. He's the one sitting on the throne. And he's jealous for the heart of his people. He doesn't want us to serve our desires. He doesn't want us to serve our pleas and our preferences. He wants us to serve him. It's like, I mean, it's Mother's Day, right? We don't expect on Mother's Day that mom's going to wait on us hand and foot. We, we do the opposite, right? We try to serve the meal that she delights in. We try to buy maybe the flowers the day before that, that she prefers, right? She has an allergy to chocolate. You don't buy her chocolate for Mother's Day. And so with God, if you want to please him, you want to delight him, you do not what delights you, but what delights him. There's so many varieties of that second option. Inventing some element of the worship we bring. That's one of the most common. Folks in every age have done it. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages came up with making the sign of the cross being an obligatory thing when you enter the sanctuary. Wearing papal vestments, holding special services to obtain merits in the eyes of God. All of that and a thousand other little elements were introduced by men, by the imaginations of men, often imported from the ceremonies of the Roman state. But they didn't perfect it. I mean, it's continued throughout every generation and it happened in every generation before, right? But God rejects it. That's why we read that first passage about Nadab and Abihu. Understand, these are two of Aaron's four sons, all of whom had been ordained as priests. They were the right ones to bring worship and recognize they weren't, they weren't staying home from church and sleeping in on Sunday. 
right? They were actually bringing worship to God, but it was worship that they invented. God hadn't told them to bring that incense in that way at that time. They were doing something extra, something, this is the key, that they invented. And God's response to that was unambiguous, wasn't it? Fire came out from his midst and consumed them. There was no trial, there was no debate, there was no broader assembly. They were destroyed in flame. And how did Moses describe it or explain it? This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Aaron held his peace because he had no choice. The creator of heaven and earth had spoken judgment against his sons for their extra worship? No. For their pride. For their high-handedness. For thinking that they could dictate what would be pleasing to God. That they could determine what would delight the Lord. And he said, no. I determine. You submit. Another way of doing this is by putting ourselves in the spotlight. I've mentioned before what I'm doing right now, preaching a sermon from a communication standpoint is really not the greatest, right? You go to any college and you learn about effective communication. This isn't it. And so many churches try to supplement or replace it. They'll use drama. They'll use multimedia. They'll use liturgical dance. They'll use all kinds of different innovations. But what does that do? It takes God out of the spotlight and it puts a man in his place or a group of men. But God says, God says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God wants us to draw near to him humbly, resting in him, trusting him, submitting to him, not highlighting ourselves, not putting the spotlight on us. Another common aspect of this false worship to which we're tempted, is importing the ways of the world into worship. That's tempting because we live in the world and we see the world's methods working, right? We see how politicians lead people into particular actions and decisions. We see how leaders in business manipulate people using the studies of socialism to draw them to the conclusion they want them to get to. And we think, well, if it works so well out there, why wouldn't it work in here? That's what we got in the Second Great Awakening with the anxious bench and the altar call. Those are the ways of the world manipulating the emotions and the thoughts of men imported into the church and baptized, as it were, in the service of God. But God hates it because God did not command it. In fact, He gave us an entire chapter, Deuteronomy 12, speaking against it. Knowing that they were coming into a land that was filled with false worship, God said, destroy all of it. Every altar, every book, 
every holy place, every practice or remnant of practice that you find, get rid of it. Because if you don't get rid of it, if you don't burn it in the fire, you're going to be tempted to duplicate it in my service and I won't have that. And then he gives them specific instructions. For example, he says, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings in any place that you are, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I am commanding you. Now, Jesus later said we would worship throughout the world, right? But in that time, in that place, false gods were worshipped on every hill and under every green tree. And so God said, no, you're going to worship here where I declare it so that you can learn to submit to me. Later, he explained to them exactly what worship they were to bring, the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings that you shall take. You shall go up to the place where the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar. He prescribed what they should bring, where they should bring it, and how. And then he got more broad. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. A few verses later. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it, nor take from it. But we're so tempted, aren't we? We're so very tempted. But the antidote to that temptation, the antidote to that man-centered Worship is simply to remember what worship is about. Worship is not about what I want, what makes me feel happy or fulfilled or warm or fuzzy, or what gets people into the pews. Worship is not about those things, but it's about the honor and the glory of God, about what He wants from us, about what He commands us to do, about what delights our Lord and our Savior. It's about giving grateful honor to the one who has given us life. And that leads us to the positive side. The submissive worship that delights God. A little bit ago we read from John 4. Jesus, part of Jesus' interaction with this woman of Samaria. And we heard him describe there the kind of worship that delights God. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Two criteria for judging our worship. But those two criteria are deep. In Deuteronomy 12, which we just read from a few minutes ago, God emphasized the truth aspect. Deuteronomy, by the way, is absolutely filled with this. So is Numbers and Leviticus. Here are the specifics. Matter of fact, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, that section gets really monotonous. That's okay. Read through it carefully. The monotony itself is a lesson. God specifies exactly how many sacrifices are to be brought precisely when and with what accompaniments he dictates 
What shall be offered in the morning and what shall be offered in the evening? What additional shall be offered every Sabbath day? And also what more shall be offered at the start of every month with the Passover? This is how it is to be celebrated in this way, in this place. And if they, they can't be there because they're unclean, then they are to worship in this way. And after the Passover celebration, there is to be a week with the celebration of unleavened bread. And so it is through all of their worship. He dictates precisely what they are to do and how they are to do it. Worship in truth. Now the nature of that worship has changed with the coming of Christ because all of those sacrifices pointed forward to Him. The book of Hebrews demonstrates very clearly that worship is to be left behind because it pointed forward and what it pointed to has been done. But now we have all of these epistles that describe and dictate what our worship should look like now the worship of fulfillment, the worship of completion, the worship of Christ. And we need to worship according to that. We need to worship according to that truth, submitting to the Lord and pointing always to what He has done. Now, of course, when we look through that, when we study that, we don't find a liturgy, we don't find an order of worship for us. We have to work for it a little bit. We have to look at the commands and the admonitions that he sets forth in the epistles. We have to look at the patterns of worship that we see in places like Acts. We have to look at the examples that God has given us. But if we prayerfully look, God will show us. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. God has used the fathers who came before us to demonstrate it to us. We have the writings of the apostolic fathers who describe in great length what worship should look like. We have the writings of the reformers who studied both what the apostolic fathers and the Bible itself teach about worship and laid it all out for us. We have contemporary scholars who have put it all in modern language so that we can easily understand it. We need to take the time, especially those of us who have been called to lead the church, I dare say no man who hasn't studied extensively the biblical admonitions to worship should ever be ordained as a minister. But you men who have been called as elders, and you, well, frankly, all of you men should be preparing for this. Because whether called as an elder or not, you're called to lead your children in worship. You're called to be able to explain it to visitors and friends. So take the time to study. There are some beautiful, simple books aimed at, not high scholars, but us, common folks, that lay out the liturgy and show how it flows from Scripture. So read those books, but don't read those books alone. Read those books with the Bible open and ask, is this really what God's Word teaches? Because that's what's determinative. That's what matters. Not what particular scholars from the Reformed tradition have said, but what God in His Word has declared, that is the truth we follow because that is the truth God has entrusted to us. And if God has commanded it for our worship, then we absolutely must not just do it, but delight in it. And if God has not commanded it, then we dare not. And let us not get lost in the woods Well, I prefer a piano, and I prefer an organ, and well, I'd rather we just go a cappella. What has God commanded? And within that, 
we judge with charity. But we must, must, must worship according to the truth God has displayed to us. And we must worship in spirit. But what's that mean? To worship in spirit. Folks, it means that we trust in the Holy Spirit to make our worship pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says that no one can even confess that Christ is Lord apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 says we can't understand the instructions of God's truth apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit. And even so, our worship cannot and will not be honoring to God. And pleasing in His sight unless we're relying on Him. That is why we begin our worship every week by pausing for a moment of prayer. Kids, understand, that's not just to collect our thoughts. That's not just to calm us down, right? Had a stressful trip into church. We got to... No, it's not that. We're asking God to bless this time. We're asking God to rid our minds of thoughts that are unsuitable to this time. We're asking the Lord to enable us to proclaim His praise and to confess His truth in a way that truly does honor Him. Now, of course, as folks who are still being sanctified, everything we do is still stained with sin. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, it is sanctified, it is purified, it is made pleasing to God. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit within and through us, our worship could never be pleasing to God. But by His power, it is delightful to Him. So then, folks, we need to pray that God would bathe our worship with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not the most natural thing for us to do. We like to rely on us. But if I can speak here especially to the fathers. I've been so struck lately by how blessed we are with children. We hear the sounds of praise to God from our children, and that's what those little cries are. In every worship service. But with that great blessing comes a great responsibility. Fathers especially, moms too, Fathers especially, the calling lays on you to prepare their little hearts for worship. We don't separate out our children for children's church because we don't believe that's appropriate. God has called his covenant people to gather together for worship, even as they did before Ezra when they returned from the exile, the young ones along with the aged. But if those young ones are to hear and understand His Word, if those young ones are to proclaim the praises of God aright, that needs to start Saturday. That needs to start Saturday with praying for the worship to be pleasing to God. That needs to start Saturday reading the text for the next day and and talking about it a little bit so that it's familiar to the kids. That needs to start Saturday with getting them to bed early getting the devices shut off, reminding them of the privilege we have to worship God. And then striving by by our diligence, but especially by God's blessing, praying for that. We keep the focus on the Lord throughout the Lord's day. So that when we gather here, it is the climax of something that fills the day. 
as we look to His truth and we rely on His Spirit and we seek to magnify the glory of our Heavenly Father by submitting to Him. Kids, it's Mother's Day. I mentioned that. Uh, The best gift you can give her. And it's not too late to get it. Submit to her. Do what she says without having to be told five times. She will love that more than any flower you could find at the store. And if we would please God, same recipe, submit to Him, honor Him, rely upon Him openly, and He will delight in that. That means what I care about, what I desire, what I want. What matters is what God wants. And if we delight in that, we will delight Him. God's grateful children embrace the worship that their Father prescribes. Getting rid of that self-willed worship that He despises. But striving for that submissive worship because that is what delights God. May the Lord lead us to seek after that, to delight in that, and he will be honored through it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship. You made us to bring you honor and glory. But left to ourselves, in the sinfulness we inherited from Adam, we would make a mockery of that worship. Thank you for giving us the instruction in your truth that we can know what the worship that delights you should look like. And thank you for your spirit who sanctifies our worship and indeed sanctifies our hearts that we might delight in that which delights you. And thank you above all for your son Jesus who has rescued us from that self-willed rebellion that came so natural, who has reconciled us to you as our heavenly father and who is continually teaching us to submit to you, to love you and to serve you. May you magnify that work within us unto your glory and honor. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our worship is to be unto God's glory. So therefore, let's acknowledge that in song. As we stand and sing Trinity Psalter Hymnal 213, Glory be to God the Father. 213.
Our offering this evening is for Vacation Bible School. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to bring the gospel to little children, both our own and those of the community, through Vacation Bible School. Please receive now the offerings we bring to that end, that they might be blessed of you and used to sow those seeds and to plant them well. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified through that which we bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Our offering song this evening is number 189 from our Blue Psalter hymnal. 189, we'll sing stanza 1 and then 3 through 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.